Once you have it, go ahead and open up to Romans 7. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. If you guys were here last week, we went through the first six verses of this chapter, and we saw Paul explain how before salvation, we were connected to the law. Like, he uses this analogy of being married to it, which is a way of just saying we were accountable to God's law, to his word, having to follow it, which quite frankly, only led to more sin in our lives as we tried to be good people or tried to live rightly in line with his word, but constantly failed. And since the law isn't going anywhere, because the law is good, there's nothing bad about it. It's good and right. God made it. But since it's going nowhere, the only way to get free of the law was to die. And that is exactly what happened to you when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, we talked about this a little while back, baptism that's symbolic of what's happened. Your old self, your sinful nature that you were in bondage to died and went to the grave with Jesus. And as a part of that, you're dead to the law now. And now since we've been forgiven of all our sin through Jesus' work on the cross, along with that sinful nature dying with Jesus and and being dead to the law, we no longer have this focus, or we shouldn't have this focus, of trying to live in accordance with it. Instead, we're to shift our focus on Jesus, on our relationship with God himself that that sacrifice on the cross has made. So we, instead of focusing on doing what's doing what's right and not doing what's wrong, we focus all our attention on our relationship with Jesus, who truly can help us live rightly, in a way that we can never do in our own power so our lives can be fruitful with God. And that's where we left it off there in verse six. So let me pray one more time and then we will go through the word verse by verse starting in verse seven. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we just, Lord, it's so easy to come in here with a bunch of distractions and we know that what you have to say to us is very important. So we don't wanna miss out on what that is. And this is such an applicable, all scripture is good. We know that. Your word says that, Lord. But this is one of those sections where we can read it and relate to it because this is our everyday struggle, Lord. Paul here sharing what it feels like to know what's right and wrong and try to do what's right and how difficult that is. And so, Lord, we want to learn what he's trying to share with us because we too want to, we know what's right. We know what's wrong. You've given us your Holy Spirit to encourage us to do what's right. We want to do what's right, but we often, we face this, this same difficulty that Paul talks about here and that there's something inside of us that fights against that. So Lord, help us learn from your word so that we can experience that victorious life over sin that you enable us and desire for us so we can experience all the good things you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So he says in verse seven, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So again, he just got done telling us that we, we have to die to the law in order to truly bear fruit for God in our lives. You can't be good. You can't do what's right without, in a sense, being born again, without dying with Jesus on that cross and being changed. 
And so one might think or one might have a response to that in thinking that, well, is the law bad then since you have to die to it, since you can't keep it? And Paul asks that question there in verse seven, hypothetically, and his answer is absolutely not. Because without the law, we would not know that we are guilty of sin in the first place. Paul uses this example of covetousness. He says that basically if the law, if God's word didn't tell me that I shouldn't covet things that I don't have that other people have, then I wouldn't know that that was a wrong thing to do. I wouldn't know that I was guilty of breaking that, that it wasn't good for me. Think of it this way. Just, just as the speed limit lets you know if you are going too fast in order to prevent you and others from being harmed, God's law lets us know if we're doing something harmful in order to protect us and those around us. And the fact that it reveals bad things about us doesn't make the law bad in itself any more than an x-ray machine should be considered bad, even though it can sometimes expose bad things that are going on inside of you, okay? And he goes on in verse eight and he says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment or through God's law, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. So what the law does is tell us what to do and what not to do. And again, the intent of it by God is for our good. He created all things. He thought us up. I mean, he's in control of everything, so he knows better than us what's good and what's not. And so if he tells us something, it's for our good. So God's commandments themselves are never bad, and they aren't to blame for the sin in our life. But rather, rather what Paul's saying here is that we're the problem, because whenever we hear, don't do that, it's like a call to action for our sinful flesh or an invitation to, as he says, seize the opportunity in verse eight to do the exact opposite of what we're being told to do. I don't think any of you guys were alive during prohibition, were you? <laughs> okay, didn't think so. That'd be pretty impressive. Um, all that to say, um, when prohibition was enacted in the United States from 1920 to 1933, if you guys don't know what that was, it was where there was a time period where liquor, all liquor sales were outlawed. It was illegal to, to have alcohol. And, I, and what do you think happened with liquor consumption amongst people when that law was enacted? Do you think it went down? Okay. It actually briefly decreased at the very beginning, but then it rapidly rose to a 70% greater alcohol drinking rate in people than pre-prohibition years, okay? Do you think that was just caused by people that already were drinking, drinking more? No, it was caused by all the additional people that started drinking because they were incited to by being told that they couldn't, okay? And honestly, if I'm being honest with you, it's one of the reasons when I was young that I started drinking and doing drugs because the only reason I had in my mind, at least in my understanding, and not to do it was that my parents told me not to do it. And so because of that, it was like, well, you tell me not to do it, I'll figure it out on my own. I'm gonna go ahead and do the opposite of what you say. But that is what he's talking about. That is our nature. That's what the law brings out. It reveals about us, right? And he goes on in verse nine and he says, 
I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So before Paul was presented with or came to know the law, came to know God's word, he was alive in the sense that he was ignorant to the sin in his life. Not that he was not guilty of sin, but rather that he hadn't come to understand that he was a sinner yet deserving of the wages of sin is death, the death penalty. He hadn't understood that yet because his guilt hadn't been exposed. But when he came to truly understand the law, his sin came alive, as verse 9 says, or in the sense that he became aware that he was guilty of doing wrong things, but that his sinful flesh was basically enticed to uh, disobey to an even greater degree. So it wasn't just that he was made aware of his sin, but also that he was encouraged to sin even more or like he was incited encouraged probably a bad word but like it wasn't telling him to sin but being told to do the opposite he was he he felt this need to do the opposite of what he was being told so rather than the law bringing the blessed life god intended it to through paul's obedience to it learning it only increased his sin and made the consequential death that his sin deserved all the more apparent to him, as verse 10 says. Then he goes on in verse 11, and he says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me, so that the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul tells us there in verse 11 the primary way that sin enticed him and entices us, and that is through deception. See, sin falsely tells you that if you give in to this temptation, you will be satisfied, which may last for a brief moment, but it won't last long. And then you will try to find something else to satisfy you. That is what people find when they get caught up in sexual sin, all right? Is you keep just going down this path and it leads you to greater and greater perversion because that thing you think will satisfy you doesn't. And then you move to the next thing. Sin will falsely give you a reason to justify your wrongdoing when there is never truly justification for doing something evil and wrong. That's what you see with these horrible atrocities being committed against people by terrorists in the world today, right? In their minds... It's justifiable to torture, murder, and rape people because of what's been done to them in their minds. But those things are not justifiable, ever. Sin will falsely tell you that it will be all right and that there will not be repercussions or punishment for your evil actions when, in fact, you will reap what you sow. I'm sure my father, when he divorced my wife or my mom, when we were younger, did not think that would have horrible consequences for his children. But it left us emotionally distraught. Paul acknowledging that the sin in his life only led to death in verse 11, which is exactly what God warned Adam and Eve would happen if they disobeyed him by eating from the one tree in the Garden of Eden, they told them not to, right? If you guys aren't familiar, Genesis 2, 16 through 17, God says, but the Lord God warned him to Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in this garden, 
Except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And along came Satan in the form of the serpent. And what did he do? Deception. He deceived Eve into believing that sin was something good that God was trying to hold back from her and Adam when in fact God was just trying to keep them away from something that would harm them and inevitably kill them. And on a side note, have you ever noticed that the fruit God told them to stay away from was on a tree that would reveal to them the knowledge of good and evil, which is exactly what the law does, right? I think that's interesting because eating from that tree exposed their sin just as the law exposes ours, which leads to death because it shows us our guilt. And Paul goes on to reiterate in verse 12 that the law in itself is good and right. It isn't the law that deceives us, but rather our sinful flesh. And this is why Jesus tells us in John 8, 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth of God's word frees us from the deceptions of sin. That's why it's so important to know God's word if you're to be successful in combating the lies of your flesh in the enemy in your life. As a Christian, if we go about this life and we are naive to God's word, it's like going into the battlefield every day without the weapon that you're supposed to be using to defend yourself. Amen? It says in verse 13, did that which is good, talking about the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So even though the law provokes our sinful nature so that we end up sinning even more, God most certainly uses the law for good things in our lives. There's two things that Paul points out here in verse 13. First, it exposes sin to be sin, as verse 13 says, or it basically shows that sin exists in our life, and it shows that there's a whole lot of it, okay? And then the second thing it does, it exposes just how evil sin really is, sin being so bad that Paul describes it as being beyond measure in verse 13. So sin even finding things that are good in, in using the opportunity to turn those good things into bad, okay? That's what he means that sin is so evil, it's beyond measure. Sin is what turns love into lust or your desire to prov provide for your family into greed or even sin having the audacity to turn something like God's law that is meant to be good and right and use it as a springboard to trick you into doing the opposite of what God says is good and right and turning it into evil, all right? And we need God to show us those things because first, sin wants to hide itself in your life so you don't even notice it's there. And secondly, it also wants you to think that it's insignificant and it's really not that bad and it's not gonna hurt you and it's not gonna hurt those around you. Theologian Charles Spurgeon had this to say about this passage. This is one of the most deplorable results of sin. It injures us most by taking from us the capacity to know how much we are injured. It undermines the man's constitution and yet yields him to boast of unfailing health. It beggars him and tells him he is rich. It strips him and makes his glory in his fancied robes. See, it makes you think. It wants you to think the opposite of what is actually happening. 
It's that deception. And that's why we need to know God's word. And he goes on in verse 14. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So that Greek word used there for of the flesh in verse 14 speaks of someone that should do something, but does not do it. And in the context of this passage, what Paul is using it to describe is himself in being a Christian that's changed by God, but still battles with the flesh in doing things that he knows he shouldn't. Or in essence, Paul understood that I'm a Christian, I'm saved, but I still struggle with sin in my life, even after being set free from the power of it by Jesus' work on the cross. And even though God's law is spiritual, or basically it's good and right, Paul recognized that it couldn't help him battle his flesh. The idea of being sold under sin, as Paul says in verse 14, means that he understood his guilt, which is the law, why the law couldn't help him. Think of it this way. If you go to jail, if you get arrested, if you commit a crime and you get arrested, the law only helps you if you're not guilty, right? Because if you actually did it, if it's not a question of guilt, you actually did it, the law actually is what proves your guilt. It actually is what condemns you. And so what Paul's saying here is, I already know I'm guilty, so the law doesn't help me. It only actually proves my guilt. So that's not the answer in my battle with sin, going to the law, trying to keep the law, trying to get that to justify myself. Paul's awareness of sin in his life, not being a reason to question his salvation, but rather an assurance of his salvation, as conviction of our sin is evidence of the Holy Spirit working inside of us, and should be the normal occurrence in any Christian's life when you have sin that you're struggling with, all right? You might have heard it said before, God accepts you as you are, but he cares about you way too much to leave you that way. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit inside of us, or one of the ways that he helps us is by making us aware of sin in our lives and exhorting us to stop doing it and instead come clean to God and go to him with help. That's called repentance. That's right. That's a biblical term for it. But that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's a sign that you're saved, okay? Verse 15, it says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, or basically I understand that what I'm doing is wrong, which is good. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can you relate to this, Christian? <laughs> is this not our life, right? Now, Paul's problem is obviously not a lack of desire to do what's right, right? Because he says there in those verses, he says in verse 18, I want to do what's right. I have that desire. Then he says in verse 19, I don't want to do what's wrong. That's there in me. And it's not a lack of knowledge because he's clearly describing that. I know the difference between right and wrong. He knows what's right. He knows what's wrong. So it's not a lack of desire. It's not a lack of knowledge. The problem is that he does not have the ability to carry it out, as verse 18 says, or he lacks the power to do what is right on his own. The law telling us what the rules are and that we need to keep them, but it lacks any power to help us follow through and do that. 
Paul also acknowledging here that when he chooses to do what's wrong, that it is coming from something that dwells with inside, inside of him, as verse 16 says. It isn't the law's fault, but rather his own sinful nature, which is against the new nature he has in Christ, and that is the reason why he doesn't want to do it. This giving us a great example of how to properly view sin in our lives as Christians, all right? We don't condemn ourselves or feel guilty because number one, you're forgiven of all sin through Jesus' work on the cross, right? His blood paid the price for all the sin you've ever done and every sin you will ever do, okay? First and foremost. Secondly, it's because you also need to realize sin should not surprise you because as Paul says in verse 17, there's nothing good that dwells inside you. Nothing. Whereas conviction is from the Lord, condemnation or guilt is never from God. Typically, condemnation or guilt comes from a lack of humility in us actually thinking that we're better than we are, okay? Verse 17, we would probably all agree with theologically. Yeah, I'm not gonna argue with God's word. There's nothing good in me. That's not really what I think, though, most of the time. Most of the time, I think, okay, well, there is some good in me. I'm capable of doing some things right, or I'm definitely better than those people over there, and here's the thing, if I think like that, then when I fall short or do the things I know I shouldn't, I get down on myself and feel condemned because I think there's something good in me that I'm failing to conjure up or utilize in my own power. When God tells me all along, no, you're not good at all. You need my help. I don't understand why you're so surprised and disappointed in yourself. You need me. You can't do it apart from me. And when I realize that I'm helpless to be good on my own apart from God, it not only frees me from guilt and condemnation that can come with sin, because what, what it also does is it reminds me to be quicker to go to Jesus, okay? Because he's the one that saved me and he's the reason why I'm forgiven of sin and he's the one that's continuing to save me and that he's the only one that can help me overcome it. Okay, which will keep me in a close relationship with him, relying on his power to overcome sin instead of trying to do it in my own strength and power or trying to like, will something up in me to follow God's word, follow God's law, which I couldn't do before I was saved. And unfortunately, I still can't do now apart from God or without his help. I like what theologian Martin Luther had to say about this text. He says, that is the proof of the spiritual and wise man. He knows that he's carnal, and he is displeased with himself. Indeed, he hates himself and praises the law of God, which he recognizes because he's spiritual. But the proof of a foolish carnal man is this, that he regards himself as spiritual and is pleased with himself. There is no room for self-righteousness in our lives if we truly understand who we are apart from God or without his help. Despite what the world would say, you're not naturally a good person, even a little. So, we're aware of our flesh, that it causes us to sin like Paul, but we also realize that we're new in Christ and sin has no power over us. And as such, sin is never something that we view as acceptable in our lives or okay. We own up to our sin, but we also realize that the temptation to sin is not from Christ, the one who is inside of us 
that is offering and willing to help us live in the victory. He's won us over it. Amen? Now he goes on to verse 20 and he says, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Or when I try to do the right thing, there's something inside of me that makes it difficult. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So Paul's telling us here that he finds it even harder in a sense as a Christian to do what's right now that he knows the difference between right and wrong and desires to do the right thing. Can anyone real, relate to that feeling? When you became saved and you actually knew what was right or wrong, or you became aware of that, and you actually had that desire from the Holy Spirit to do what's right, all of a sudden it seemed to become harder to actually do the right thing. Can you guys relate to that? So since I've been made aware that being impatient is a sin, it seems like I have every opportunity in the world to be impatient in everything in my life. Now that I know lusting is wrong, it seems that my eyes are prone to it. Now that I know that gossip is wrong, all of a sudden it seems my ears are always being tempted to listen to somebody talking about somebody else. Now that I know it's wrong to be critical of others, I feel like my eyes are constantly looking to be judgmental at other people's actions. I can relate to what author C.S. Lewis said, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. Paul's saying in verse 22 that he delighted in the law of God or God's word or that his new self in Christ believed it was good and wanted to follow it, but he found the remnants of his old self still remained that opposed doing what was right. And he recognized that there's this battle going on, going on inside of him constantly where his members or flesh were fighting for control of his mind, trying to get him to do the opposite of what he wanted to do, as he says there in verse 23. And his response to this in verse 24 is, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, the Greek word there used for wretched in verse 24 literally translates to wretched through the exhaustion of hard labor. Paul describing to us what it feels like when we try to follow God or obey his word in our own strength, it leaving Paul completely worn out and feeling horrible about himself because in his unsuccessful efforts to try to live in accordance with God's law in his own power, he couldn't do it. And it just left him feeling miserable and discouraged and distraught and tired and weary. Some commentators wondering if Paul's actually referencing a practice at this time where dead decomposing bodies would be chained to prisoners is a mean of torture when he's saying in verse 24, deliver me from this body of death. Charles Spurgeon had this to say about this passage. He says, it was the custom of ancient tyrants when they wished to put men to the most fearful punishments to tie a dead body to them, placing the two back to back. And there was the living man with a dead body closely strapped to him, rotting, putrid, corrupting, and this he must drag with him wherever he went. Now, this is just what the Christian has to do. He has within him the new life, 
He has a living and undying principle which the Holy Spirit has put within him, but he feels that every day he has to drag about with him this dead body, this body of death, a thing as loathsome, as as hideous, as abominable to his new life as a dead, stinking carcass would be to a living man. Is that such a good description of what it feels like, right? In our flesh, which we're going to be free of one day when we're with Jesus. But right now, it feels like we're dragging it around with us. Our flesh being able to, our, our flesh being able to do battle with us and win when we try to fight it in our own power because we can't be good apart from God, which should drive us to one place. And this is what Paul's getting at. And that is to God for help. Desperate for deliverance as we realize our sinfulness and helplessness to overcome it in our own strength. And he goes on and he goes that direction. He says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but through this whole chapter, Paul has a lot of eyes and me's. He's very, very self-focused up until this point. But all that gets him is into a place of desperation. It gets him to a place of saying, wretched man that I am, who's gonna help me, okay? But that place of desperation leads him to change his focus and he looks out of himself, outside of himself to Jesus and there is where he finds something to thank God for, okay? The word through, Paul uses in verse 25, means that he sees Jesus correctly and that Jesus bridges the gap between him and God and that he is able to go to God for help. And the fact that he calls Jesus Lord in verse 25 shows that he has Jesus at that proper place in his life that ultimately, I just wanna follow Jesus. I just wanna do what he says. I wanna go where he's leading me. Paul acknowledging the battle going on in him, not pretending that somehow being saved makes everything better, that he didn't struggle with sin, but he also acknowledges the victory that he had over sin with God's help through Jesus. And like Paul, this is where we can find ourselves when we're trying to live under the law, looking to your own personal ability and performance to do what God has said is good and right, which is never gonna lead to the success that you desire, but rather to a place of desperation that Paul found himself in, which isn't a bad place to be, okay? Because like Paul, in our helplessness, instead of saying, how will I deliver myself, which is the absolute wrong question, you'll start asking the right question like him in verse 22, and you'll say, who will deliver me, okay? You see, when it comes to living in the victorious life over sin that Jesus has won us, it is never about how to do it. It's always about who is gonna help you do it, okay? And that person is Jesus Christ. He didn't just die on the cross to give us a bunch of rules to follow. He died to pay the penalty for our sin as we talked about up to this point in Romans. He died and rose from the grave so that you'd be freed from the power of sin, as we've also talked about. Last week, we talked about how he's also freed you from being preoccupied with sin or having to focus on, this is what I should do, and this is what I shouldn't do. He died on that cross so that you could instead be focused on him 
and looking to him to live through you and help you live in that victorious life over sin so that you can experience his good, pleasing, and perfect will and be blessed. Amen. I'm glad somebody's happy about that. <laughs> Man, when I look back at my life and I look at how destructive I was, you know, like Paul, at that time I thought I was alive, but I was just hurting myself and hurting others, and I was heading down that path of sin. And I'm so thankful that God saved me from that. I don't want to go back there. This battle resonates with me so much because I want to do what God says is right because I've come to learn that that is the good things, that it's a better place to be in life. I don't want to do the things that I think are good and right. They don't ever end up that way. And it comes, when it comes to this battle with sin in our lives, we can make this make, mistake of thinking that I just didn't know what to do. And now that I know God and I know his word, I know what I need to do. I'm good. Wrong. I know what to do and I still can't do it. I don't need a teacher. I need a savior. Or I can make the mistake of thinking that I just didn't have the proper motivation before. The God of the universe has told me what to do. I'm good. Wrong. I, I have all the motivation I need and I still can't do it. I don't need a coach. I need to be saved. I can make the mistake of thinking that, well, now that my problem's been properly diagnosed, I can take better care of myself. I can make myself wrong, well wrong. I can't heal myself. I don't need a doctor. I need a savior. And here's the thing. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord because we have the savior we need to help us and He's come to save us completely from our sin. Amen? You're forgiven of it. You're saved from the, the penalty that comes with it, death. But he's come to save you practically from it too. So you experience blessedness instead of the consequences that come with it. And as the worship team comes back up here and we close out today, I just want to reiterate that what Paul is not doing here in Romans 7 is giving you and me, some sort of line-by-line, one-two-three-step program in how to not sin in your life. That's not what he's doing. He's simply giving you the exhortation that, hey, I've tried everything in my own power, everything that I, I could possibly do to follow God's word, and it's been totally unsuccessful. But here's where I find success when I'm close to Jesus, when I go to him, when I stay connected to him, because I can't do anything apart from him, that's where I'm successful. And that's where I strive to be close to Jesus. And it's so funny that when I teach through passages so often, the Lord's like, I'm gonna give you a practical example of this in your life this week. <laughs> and this was one of those weeks I was, I was telling the elders, I was asking them for prayer because this is a, the fall is always a really busy time for us as a family with just three boys playing three different sports on top of all the normal demands. And this week was one of those weeks where it felt like it went from treading water to just basically drowning. Like, it, it's like where nothing extra can be added to our week, because if it does, then I just, I can't manage it all. As good as I am and gifted in managing things, like, it's like there was just too much. And what that resulted in was me being very grumpy and angry and upset and impatient. And most often that comes out in the people I love most, unfortunately. But what I recognized was, you know what? I don't feel this way 
or I didn't feel that way, or I handled everything going on a lot better in my life when I was in God's word studying, when I was praying, when I was with other believers, when I was focused on God, when I was connected in my relationship with him, I wasn't stressed by everything else going on. I was able to be patient. I was able to be kind. Those fruits of the Holy Spirit, right? So we talked about last week, when you walk by the Spirit, when you let God lead you, you won't gratify the desires of your flesh. But as soon as I was out of the Word, as soon as I was out of prayer, I was out of being connected to God, all of a sudden, I went from being a Mary to Martha real quick, just running around trying to do all these, uh, uh, these things and panicking, even coming up, God, why don't you tell her to help me, Lord? I got way too much going on. Now see that I can't always be in God's word. I got responsibilities to do. I can't always be in prayer. I mean, like just focused prayer and stuff. I can be praying just little prayers and stuff. But part of following Jesus is learning to be that Mary at all times. Even when I'm doing things, you know, other things in life, looking at those from the right perspective, looking to God to lead me, looking to him to to help me, just trusting him. If I've got a million things on my plate, just doing the next thing. And if the other things don't get done, they don't get done. Just being submitted, letting the spirit lead me so I, I don't gratify the desires of my flesh. And this is like such a pivotal thing for us to learn, right? Because I would guess if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, you're the same as Paul here. You're the same as me. We wanna do what God says is good and right. We've tasted and seen that the Lord's good. We don't want to do the things that we know are wrong. But yet we can struggle with them. Because we try to conjure something up in our own power. We think there's something in us that can actually do it. And it can't. We need Jesus. We need to be close to Jesus. And maybe you even came in here today feeling like Paul. Like just wretched. Exhausted because you're battling something in your life and you're just like, man, ready to throw in the towel because you're like, I, I can't do it. I can't overcome this sin. I've got, I keep getting angry at my, my kids or my wife and keep struggling with a sin that keeps reoccurring and the Lord's just telling you, stop condemning and feeling guilty because I paid the price for that. But also because, don't be surprised, yeah, you, you can't do it on your own. You need me. And the Lord's just calling you back to himself. He's just giving you the opportunity right now to, in a sense, come back to the altar, come, come to him and go like, Lord, I'm sorry, but I, I need you. I need you. I need to come to you. I need your help. I need you to live through me and help me live in that, that victory over sin. Maybe you're somebody here and you recognize, you, you, haven't, you, you don't have a relationship with God. This is, you're hearing this, this for the first time that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to, he came and lived on this earth and, and lived a perfect life without sin. Only he was able to do that because he was equal with God and he died on a cross, not because of anything he did wrong, but because everything I did wrong, everything you did wrong, so that the penalty for your sin, the wages of sin is death is what we read in Romans. The penalty for your sin could be paid for in full and you could be forgiven and made right with God, and then you could have a relationship with him because he's perfect and right, and you can't be in his presence unless you're perfect and right, and that could only come 
that can only come through faith in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. That's what he says in his word. And through receiving that, that gift he's given you of forgiveness, he sends his Holy Spirit inside of you, changes you. Your old self that's in bondage to sin, that can't help but sin, that dies. And now you're free in Christ and you have his spirit inside of you to show you what's right, show you what's wrong, to help you and guide you and keep you close to him so you can rely on him to help you live rightly. And then you can experience as Romans 12 says, the good, pleasing, and perfect will he has for each one of us. And you can receive Jesus today if you haven't. That, that wretchedness you feel because you can't stop doing things wrong in your life and hurting yourself and hurting others, that can change today. So what we're gonna do is in the response time, we're gonna have communion out Again, this is gonna be like communion. You take it on your own. You come up and get it and you talk to God. Maybe you have sin you need to confess. You repent. Remember, repentance isn't a bad thing. And like I explained, that's a good thing. Conviction of the Holy Spirit, that, that wouldn't be there if you weren't saved. And God is inside of you saying, come to me. Don't go away from me. Come to me. You're forgiven of this. I'm here to help you. This is why I saved you. Rely on me. Stop relying on yourself. And I encourage you, like, examine your heart before you take that communion. Sometimes we can focus on, like, outward sins, like things that we see that are really bad or in our minds. Like, very visible is probably a better way to say it because there's no scale of sin in life. We look on the visible things like, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not dealing with drugs. I'm not committing adultery. I'm good. But there's those things that maybe you are struggling with almost every day, like impatience, a lack of kindness, gossiping, covetousness, those things that the reason God wants to free you from them is because they don't leave you in a good place. They hurt you, they hurt others, they weigh you down, they discourage you, they bring anxiousness. These are all things that aren't small. They cause a lot of damage to you. And God wants to free you from those too. So examine your heart. If those things exist, Confess them knowing you're forgiven of them and then look to God to help you. Live by his spirit so you don't gratify the desires of your flesh, amen? It's that simple. Cry out to God. Through Jesus, you have that access. And take communion on your own. Remember the, the, the bread symbolizes God's body that was broken on the cross so that the power of sin could be defeated in your life, the the juice symbolizes his blood that atoned for, paid the price in full for every sin that you've ever done, every sin you will ever do, and you thank him for those. We'll have our prayer team around the room too. If, if, this, is, if this is like, if the Holy Spirit right now is ministering to you and, and saying, man, that's something going on in your life specific. Man, this is for me. I'm in that place of just like Paul where I feel wretched and exhausted I need to learn to just rely on God and not myself. I need to go back to my first love. I need to draw near to him. Come up and get prayer from your brother and sister in Christ. This is, we can all relate to this. This is a safe place. There's no condemnation on you, no guilt, nobody looking down upon you. There's no self-righteousness here. We're all in the same boat and we're to bear burdens with each other. 
so that we understand we're not alone. God's with us, but also he's given us family to lift these things up together with, amen? Lord God, just be with us now in this time, Father. Father, I'm so thankful that, you know, I make it really complicated and I'm sorry for that. It's way harder to just try to make a list in my head of doing this and not doing that and then trying to do something that I was never capable of doing in the first place and trying to keep those things and somehow earn my way to you when I, I couldn't do that to save myself, so there's no way I can do it now. You make it so easy, you just say, come, I'm here. Just draw near to me. Just be connected to me. Talk with me. Listen to what I have to say to you through my word. Talk with me through prayer. Be with my people so that my spirit can move and encourage you and exhort you. These tangible ways you've given us to experience you in our lives. And that's, that's what you say. Just go do those things. Stay close to me. And when you're close to me, I'll be able to work through you and move through you and lead you into the way I want you to go and empower you to do it. So I pray that for my brothers and sisters right now, Lord. I pray that for myself, that we'd be open and honest with you and we just draw near. We come seeking your help, Lord. Just even as Hillary was ministering earlier during worship, Lord, it starts with us just reaching for the hem of your garment. I think of that woman that no one else in the world could help her. She tried everything and was bleeding for years. And all she did in faith was, if I just touch Jesus, he can help me. May we have that same heart as her today, Lord. May we just reach out knowing that you're here in this place and look to you to help us. In Jesus' name, amen.